Come, come, whoever you are, wanderer, worshiper, lover of leaving. Lover of leaving. Ours is not a caravan of despair. Even though you've broken your vows a thousand times, come, yeah, come again. There's a story that I used to hear pretty frequently during my journey. Especially at a particular point in my own biography, this joke would appear over and over again. It goes like this. Goldie Cohen is an elderly Jewish lady. Being from Brooklyn, <laughs> she goes to her travel agent and she says, I want to go to India. Mrs. Cohen, why India? It's filthy, it's much hotter than New York, it's filled to the rim with people, lots and lots of people. I want to go to India. But it's a long journey, trains, how are you going to manage? What are you going to eat? The food is too hot, it's spicy, you can't drink the water. You shouldn't eat fresh fruit and vegetables, you'll get sick, the plague, all of the different things. What are you going to do? Can you imagine the hospital without Jewish doctors? <laughs> Why torture yourself? I want to go to India. The necessary arrangements are made, and off she goes. She arrives in India, and undeterred by the noise, the smell, and the crowds, she makes her way to an ashram. And there she joins a seemingly never-ending queue of people waiting for an audience with the guru. An aide tells her that it will take at least three days of standing in line to see the guru. That's okay, Goldie says. Eventually she reaches the hallowed portals. There she's told firmly that she can only say three words. Fine, she says. She's ushered into the inner sanctum where the wise guru is seated, ready to bestow spiritual blessings upon eager initiates. Just before she reaches the Holy of Holies, she is once again reminded, remember, just three words. Unlike the other devotees, she doesn't prostrate at his feet. She stands directly in front of him, crosses her arms over her chest, fixes her gaze on him and says, Sheldon, come home. <laughs> it's a cute story. But really, you and you and you and you and you and all of you, all of us, we're all Sheldon. We are all seekers and journeyers. In the words of the chant that we just sang, we're all lovers of leaving that are called home. We are lovers of leaving that are called home. In a profound way, we human beings, in the most general way, and we Jews in particular, are homeward bound. Homer's Odyssey is the classic tale of homecoming, 
a hero's journey that takes a decade to complete, a journey of healing, of discovery, and of longing to come back home. The dream of the lost home must be one of the deepest and oldest of human dreams. Certainly it is the most ancient dream of our people, embodied in our grieving for the temple, in the shattered glass that we break underneath the chuppah at every wedding, and in our national resolve to someday rebuild that temple which is called the bayit, the home. This dream is also the basis of a profound expression of our American psyche, the game of baseball, a game whose object is to leave home in order to return again Winning means arriving home safely. <laughs> but in all seriousness, we see this pattern psychically too. The urge is what psychiatrists call the repetition compulsion, what Freud introduced to the world that the unconscious craving that we have to master unresolved dilemmas, unresolved elements that are frozen in time, we never leave the age at which a trauma occurs. We always go back to work it through. There's something in the psyche that resists resolution until there is a homecoming. We spend most of our lives doing this dance, this strange pushing forward to go back home, and that is the essence of this entire high holiday period. The word for repentance is more accurately translated as returning, tshuva. Tshuva, repentance, isn't repentance. That has a, a, a monetary connotation, to give back what we owe, which is also beautiful. But tshuva, tshuva, what we're doing tonight, what we've been doing since Tisha B'Av, back in, right, so long ago, we are returning, all of us. We are shortening the gap, the distance between where we are and where we ought to be. In that shuva moment, in that returning moment, we want to be located. We want to end the endless journeying away from our origin and arrive. Arrive again on the shores of a home, of a place, of an inheritance. This theme of returning also has theological extensions. A radical notion in Jewish mysticism is that God is also out of place. The galut ha the exile of the divine. God yearns to be here with us, say the mystics, but somehow that yearning, that desire for a dira to live here in this world is unfulfilled. God's tshuva, as it were, is that shortening of the distance between our sense of God's absence and God's presence. In moments of deep imminence, of deep feeling, when we get that sense that God is with us, that presence of the divine, of the sacred, of the heart, of the transcendent, whatever you call it, whatever name, whatever nickname it could be, in that closing of the gap between abandoned and with me, God returns. There's a tshuva. God resides within us. This returning, again, is vital. 
One last example of how it affects us, not only psychologically, not only theologically, but sociologically, this division between living in, of dwelling, of home, and seeking, were categories that were used by Robert Wuthnow, the great Princeton sociologist of religion, to describe the American religious landscape. Wuthnow divided American religionists into two categories. He said there are seekers and dwellers. The seekers, which we'll get to in a moment, the dwellers were the ones who stayed within the confines of their religious tradition. The 50s were a dweller's decade. Churches proliferated, synagogues proliferated. Everywhere you went, they were building buildings and creating boards. People stayed within their own tradition. And the dwellers gave way to the seekers. And in they came. All of the Sheldons. <laughs> off on their journeys. The seekers leaving their homes. In the 60s and 70s, counterculturally pushing back against the dwelling movement. And we, who sit here tonight, many of us, and certainly Romamu itself, is an expression of the seekers who have come home. The seekers who have gone out to find, to glean, to experience, to touch. And hearing that call have returned. I love this frame of dwelling and seeking. I most especially love the sense that dwelling and living in is what God wants us to experience. And it also helps me to make sense of something that is happening tonight that frankly I don't quite understand, and now I make sense to me. I've been wondering for a while, why does everybody come out on Yom Kippur? What is it that's happening here tonight? Sure, many of you come on a weekly basis, but around the globe, of all the holidays that you could imagine saying, all of them will be there tonight. <laughs> Let's think about this for a moment. I get it about Passover and Seders and familial bonds, the dynamics and the festive Thanksgiving-like moment, the opportunity to solidify those connections and, and create new ones. But Yom Kippur is anything but festive. I'd like to invite you to a party where you'll be asked to confess to all of your shortcomings <laughs> in front of everybody to admit culpability. Fun, yeah? <laughs> it could be Pascal's wager. Could be everybody thinks, okay, better hedge my bets. I'm going to come. Maybe. Could be that people think I'll get it all out of the way in one holiday. Maybe. But I think the popularity of Yom Kippur, the popularity of, one, of Yom Kippur is what connects it to another mystery. How is it that Yom Kippur is compared to Shabbat? 
Tonight is Shabbat. Tomorrow is Shabbat. And in the Torah, Yom Kippur is called the Sabbath of Sabbaths. Shabbat Shabbaton. How is Yom Kippur analogous to Shabbat? The simple answer is that there's something very unique to the seventh day. It happens every week. And that is this. The Torah says that on Shabbat, al ish Shabbat. We are told that on Shabbat, the Israelites were told, don't leave your place. Al ish Don't leave your home. Stay home. Whatever it is that you have is enough. Whatever it is that you've done and prepared, that's enough. The essence of Shabbat is that you stay where you belong. You don't leave. You don't travel. You don't journey on any level. And Yom Kippur, everybody, Yom Kippur, I want to argue tonight. I really feel it so deeply. Yom Kippur is, don't leave your place. That Yom Kippur is, and the popularity of it, this night of broken promises and solemn rites, this night of introspection and huddled intimacy, this night of reckoning and regretting. is because tonight we come home. Tonight and tomorrow as we dress and rehearse our death, in our white shrouds and our fasting, disengaging from our bodies, we are given 25 hours to use, to use death as a goad to living good lives, to see death as the ultimate truth and instead of becoming cynics and pessimists, to claim a life lived well as our ultimate value. So we lovers of leaving, we turn to come home. The inevitable distances that we traveled and the inevitable distances that we create between ourselves and our souls, ourselves and our loved ones, between ourselves and God and our heart, we recognize them. And like Odysseus, like the city of Nineveh that we will read about tomorrow, we turn, we turn to come home. It was one year ago, as we sat together and prayed, who will live and who will die? We had no way of knowing. We could never have imagined that our dear friend, Azriel Cohen, would die so tragically and so unexpectedly. Azriel, at the age of 47, went to sleep one night and never woke up again. For those of you who never met Azriel, let me share a bit about him. Azriel was a soul brother, and he was the quintessential Sheldon. He was a one-of-a-kind Renaissance man, an artist, a teacher, a healer. He grew up in an Orthodox family and was a genius with a huge heart and soul. For him, every culture had something to offer. Every person was a curiosity and every opportunity to travel was an opportunity to be free. He lived in Jerusalem. He lived in Toronto. He lived in Thailand. He lived in Costa Rica. Whenever I looked to find where Azriel was, 
I had to ask 10 people to find out where he was living. That's the kind of soul that he had. And you know what the amazing thing about Azriel was, everybody? Azriel traveled the whole world. There wasn't any place that he didn't feel at home. And when he died, he had come home to be with his brother in New Jersey. He came home to die. And so do we tonight and tomorrow. Yom Kippur is as powerful as it is, specifically because we're not eating, we're not drinking, we're not saying past this and past that. We've come home, each and every one of us tonight, because our true home, our true home is being reflected in what we're doing tonight. That's our true home. So I don't think it's fear. I don't think that you're hedging your bets. I think you're intuiting something very, very powerful. And there's something else that you're doing tonight. And there's something very beautiful that the tradition is offering. And that is that you're all together. And that this tradition is saying something about what home really means. Remember that sociologist that I quoted a little bit earlier, now. He told a story that I had to share with you. He once conducted a research study about why people, some people are generous and compassionate while others are not. And here's what he found. That for many compassionate people, something had happened to them earlier in their lives. Something had, someone in particular had acted with compassion towards them and that that experience transformed their lives. He gives an example about a guy named Jack Casey who was a rescue squad worker who had little reason to be a compassionate person. Casey was raised in a tough home. He was the child of an alcoholic father. He had once said to Wuthnow, that all my father ever taught me is that I didn't want to grow up to be like him. But something happened to Jack when he was a child that changed his life and changed his heart forever. He was having surgery one day, and he was scared. He was frightened. He remembers the surgical nurse standing there and compassionately reassuring him, don't worry, she said to Jack, I'll be here right beside you no matter what happens. And when Jack woke up again, she was true to her word, and she was still there. Years later, this Jack Casey, now a paramedic, was sent to the scene of a highway accident. A man was pinned upside down in his pickup truck, and as Jack was trying to get him out of the wreckage, gasoline was dripping down on both of them. The rescuers were using power tools to cut the metal, so one spark could have caused everything to go up in flames. The driver was frightened and he was crying. He was saying how scared he was of dying. And Jack remembered what had happened to him long ago on the operating table. How that nurse had spoken tenderly to him and stayed with him. And he said and did the same thing for the truck driver. 
He said, look, don't worry. I'm right here with you. I'm not going anywhere. When I said that, Jack remembered later, I was reminded of how the nurse had said the same thing and she never left me. Days later, the rescued truck driver said to Jack, you know, you were an idiot. <laughs> the thing that could have exploded and we'd have both been burned up. And Jack replied, I just couldn't leave you. I think that tonight, in every Yom Kippur, God is saying, I just can't leave you. Wherever you are, I will find you. Despite your sins and transgressions, your regrets and broken dreams, that is the promise that God makes to us. It is a promise that we make to our loved ones and to ourselves. I won't leave you. It is a promise of a home in which we will finally rest. This act of great compassion is a great moment. If we can be with each other in this space of deep vulnerability as we face our own transience, we gain the courage to help others face life this way too. So Yom Kippur is the night when we say, just come home. I don't care where you've been. Maybe I don't even want to know. You're my child. Just come home. I remember as a 19-year-old, I was living in Jerusalem I was away from my folks and I became very spiritually sick. I was becoming more and more religious and running further and further away from the real root of my religious transformation, which was pain. As I became more and more unhealthy, suddenly my brother showed up in Israel. Now remember, this was before internet, there were no cell phones. I walked in one day into my room and there was my twin brother. He had come to take me home. I didn't go with him. Sometimes we don't turn when we should. Sometimes no matter how hard we try, we can't find our way back. It can take us years. It can take us decades. Sometimes even a lifetime of leaving before we feel ready to come home, to our real home, to the home that we never really leave and never really lose. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring, says T.S. Eliot, will be to arrive where we started and to know the place for the first time. To come home. For some of us, that notion is so painful. For some of us, going home has residue of, of anything but safety and security. For some of us, coming to synagogue is a place of alienation. For some of us, suffering with post-traumatic God disorder <laughs> stopping long enough for God's love to catch up to us, to dwell in us, is a scary proposition. We're afraid that it will happen again. 
We're afraid that it's going to hurt. It's afraid that we're afraid that it's going to feel so good and then it'll be taken away. We're afraid that if we feel ourselves long enough in one place, we don't know if we can make it. And so we gather here. We gather on this night of rehearsing death. We gather each and every one of us to hold hands literally and figuratively and say, I won't leave you. I'm here with you. We can make it. That's a promise that on this night of broken promises that we can make. For me, in my vision of what this community could be one day and already is in some seed form, is that beautiful harmonization of leaving and staying, of dwelling and seeking, of earth and fire, a community where it's a hearth that we come to warm ourselves by, its stability unshakable, its dependability relied upon, and its passion evident, a safe home a new home for old souls. There was a song that I, I fell in love with when I was much younger, and uh, I'm sure many of you know it. And it has this message in it in such a powerful way that I wanted to share it with you. It's a song written by Tracy Chapman, and it's called The Promise. Tracy writes in the most beautiful, erotic, loving, compassionate prose of, a, of two lovers who have been separated. When finally we're united, it says, together again, it would feel so good to be in your arms. Where all my journeys end, if you can make a promise. If it's one that you can keep, I vow to come for you. If you wait for me and say you'll hold me and hold a place for me in your heart. All of the promises that we've broken. And God says, make one promise now. Make a space for me in your heart and I vow to come for you. And so that maybe as you leave tonight on your journeys, maybe a, at some point you'll hear a little voice say, just come home. Isn't it time? That you just came home. השיבנו אדוני אליך ולשובה. חדש ימינו כקדם. God whisper in our hearts, remind us to turn. Remind us, O lovers of leaving, to make a space in our hearts so that we can just come home.
Amen.